Dr. Olenoff, is faculty at Cal State University, Los Angeles. English, English language learning is her specialty area. She is bilingual in Spanish, and she was a bilingual teacher for 14 years. She's the associate director of our ED, EDD, ED Specialist Doctorate Program in special education and in regular education. And it's our leadership program at Cal State LA. She has recently published a book called Differentiated Literacy Instruction for English Language Learners, and she is going to talk about some of the content that is in her book. So welcome. Thank you so much, Sharon. And I, I have a loud voice, so I'll try to do this without too much microphone, because um, that's from being seven years as a first grade teacher, you get a loud voice. Um, and I thought we'd start off with an activity, and I don't know how many of you read Spanish, but I thought we'd start off with a Spanish reading passage. Um, and if you could, if you read Spanish, don't answer the questions. This is targeted for those of you who don't read Spanish. So take a minute to read that to yourself. Oh, I see a lot of good strategies going on for reading. Now, if you read in Spanish, you're already done and you don't need much help. All right, I thought I'd give you a little scaffolding on the passage. So let's look at some Spanish vocabulary that if you didn't get the whole passage, you might, might help you with it. All right, so we've got the Los Planetas Internos. Whoops, that one's not that I want there yet. I always do this wrong. So we can see, interestingly enough, this is in English. We've got some primary language scaffolding here for you. So we, I heard you talking about that. We've got the Planetas Internos. And we can see, we learn about Marte here. You now know what the tierra is, right? Mercurio es, es que está más cerca del sol. All right. Take a look at the passage again. Now that you've had some, some scaffolding, take a look at the passage again. To make a little more sense, I'm hoping. So let me ask you some comprehension questions. <laughs> ¿Cómo se llaman las planetas más cerca, cercanos del sol? Marte, what else? Tierra, Mer, and Venus, right? Okay. And cuáles son los I get the questions messed up. That was supposed to be the the first one was the planetas internos. I messed up the questions myself, and I read Spanish. That's not good. Okay. We know. The reason I did this activity is we know that overall, students who speak a language other than English at home account for 40% of California's K-12 school population. They come to school every day in the beginning of their educational careers, and most of them, and learn to read in a language that they don't fully, are not fully proficient in that language. And some of them have some English skills, some of them have less, some of them have more. And we know that number is growing. Um, in California, we have 32% of all the English language learners in the U.S. live in California. 25% of the students in California are classified as English language learners. And less than 12% receive any kind of services, of bilingual services. And that's since our Prop 227 passed in 1998 that basically said that instruction in schools has to be overwhelmingly in English. Okay. It never said it couldn't be bilingual. It just said it had to be overwhelmingly in English. Now, I work in Los Angeles County. The numbers are even more compelling in Los Angeles County. 30% of all ELs, ELLs in California live in Los Angeles County, and only 6% of English language learners in, in Los Angeles County receive any kind of bilingual, ser bilingual services. And in fact, in our largest school district, um, most English language learners go into mainstream English class where all the, their instruction is in English all day long. Who teaches English language learners in California? 94% of teachers, and this is in Los Angeles rather, are taught in English-only classrooms. And yet, in 2004, the, the CSU Center for Teacher Quality reported that both teachers and administrators responded that teachers need more preparation to teach English language learners. Basically, 40% of teachers in the U.S. will have at least one English language learner in their classroom right now. And only 13% of those teachers have received any preparation to teach those students. And you're standing in California. I know some of you are from New Mexico, Colorado. Your, your states are the states that are likely to have more teachers that are prepared, New York as well. But states that have new emerging populations of English language learners have very often have no teachers that have been trained um, and teachers that may not be bilingual. In California, you might have 
uh, most, uh, the majority of our English language learners speak Spanish, but in other states and in California, parts of California. I think Los Angeles has 113 different language groups just in Los Angeles. So um, I, Cheryl told you about my book called uh, Differentiated Literacy Instruction for English Language Learners, which I wrote with my co-author, Alice Kiocho. Um, and we decided that we would come up with a, we would, we would try to look at pedagogy a little bit different, and we call it our model for a new pedagogy. And I'm going to share that model with you today. And I'm afraid if I stand over here, you won't see me. I'm shorter than the computer. <laughs> what? But the sound's better. Okay. So we propose a model that begins and ends with the student. And within the model, instruction is differentiated to meet both students' linguistic needs, but also their instructional needs. Because with an English language learner, if they don't, if they demonstrate that they don't know something, we can never be sure that that lack of knowledge has to do with language or it has to do with content, because they're mixed. And so our model looks like this. It starts with who the students are and what they know. It moves to the language and content we need to teach, so kind of a task analysis of what we need to teach. We talk about how we'll differentiate instruction how we'll scaffold language and content, and then we're going to have, we're going to find out what the students learned. Who are the students? That's the first thing that we need to, we have in our, in our model. We really want you to think about who the students are. You need to look at their cultural backgrounds, because that might influence the way they process text or approach instruction. We need to look at their language backgrounds, and we're going to look at some students and their language backgrounds in a moment. Um, are they bilingual? Do they speak their native language fluently? Are they proficient in their native language? One of my areas of study are students that come to school speaking what we call Chicano English. These are students that grow up in areas like East Los Angeles whose parents are native Spanish speakers. They grow up and they're not Spanish speakers, but they don't speak standard English either. They speak a hybrid version of English called Chicano English, which is like a, almost like a, it's not Spanglish, but it's like a Hispanicized version of English that might have some Spanish words, might have some Spanish syntax, um, but it's not standard English, and they don't speak Spanish. We need to look at their language proficiency levels in both their native language and their second language. Their educational background. Do the students start, do they start school at the beginning in kindergarten or pre-K and, and go to school completely? Or did they move in and out of schools, change schools a lot? Did they grow up in a different country and not go to school in their different country? Or did they grow up in a different country and have complete education in that country? And then we need to look at their home responsibilities. What things do they know at home that might influence how they learn in school? To me, the educational background, the language proficiency, and the cultural background are the three things that are going to influence how well students learn to read in school. And I think they're things that we need to keep in the back of our mind constantly when we're talking about educating second language learners. We know that some students have strong educational backgrounds, they speak two languages, have high SES, social, socioeconomic status, stability, and that also means usually high SES means access to text and print that, that other students might not have. Others have weak educational backgrounds like my student Ranulfa. She came to my class in the second grade. She was 11. They put her in my class because I was a bilingual teacher. Ranulfa had never been to school. She was 11. The rest of my students were seven. Ranulfa couldn't read or write. But the life of a seven-year-old is vastly different from the life of an 11-year-old. And so even though she made quick friends with the students and left my class after a year reading at a second grade level, there were, there were consequences and prices to pay. Sadly, because she was then 12, they put her into fourth grade, which, you know, it's like skipping a grade when you're already two years below grade level. So it's... All right, so let's look at Krishna. Krista left Poland at age 12, where she was a good student. She entered a seventh grade program in Oregon with sheltered content and content-based ESL lessons. Within two years, she exited the ESL program. She was a top student by ninth grade and developed a website for the high school student council. How do you think she's going to do in school in English literacy? How do you think? Yeah, she'll, she's got really high academic English literacy. She's going to do well. The key is she left Poland at 12 when she was, where she was a good student. She knew how to read and write in Polish when she got here and was able to transfer all those skills to English. And these, these samples are, are courtesy of Donna Christian at the Center for Applied Linguistics. Joaquin, on the other hand, came from Puerto Rico, came to Pennsylvania at age four. He spoke Spanish at home, had kindergarten and first grade in Spanish. In second grade, 
they moved him into an English classroom. His family moved, and in fourth grade, he was in a Spanish classroom. In sixth grade, he now speaks a mixture of Spanish and English, what a surprise, and he isn't making any academic progress. So we would say that Joaquin has pretty low. He's got some academic literacy, but not too much. Carlos, on the other hand, attended a Montessori school in third, and when he was three and four years old. In kindergarten, he entered a two-way immersion program in New Mexico. 50% of his day was in Spanish, 50% was in English. He studied grade-level curriculum throughout elementary school this way, but he took state tests in English, even though half of his instructional time was in Spanish. In the middle school now, he continues with advanced Spanish language arts and literacy classes. What do you think? Is he doing literature classes? You think he's okay? You don't know. Actually, he's doing really well. Um, there's been there's a lot of research. Thomas and Collier are the big proponents of dual immersion programs to suggest that um, dual immersion programs are very effective. There's some criticisms of them too, most most strongly by Guadalupe Valdez out of Stanford, but that's for a different day. Um, and our last student is Aziza. She attended school in Somalia for a year when she was eight. Then she stayed home to help. At 14, her family went to a refugee camp where she learned some basic English. At 16, her family came to Minnesota, and she enrolled in high school. Do you think she's doing okay? No, she's not. And these are the students you'll see. They're struggling because they don't have a foundation in literacy or language. So we, uh, we suggest that we need to find out what the students already know, because knowing about those four students before you plan instruction would help you to, to plan effective instruction for those students. Um, we talk about interests. It's important. I think Madeline Hunter, I was talking about that in my earlier session, wrote a series of skinny books back in the 60s, I believe, and one of them was called Interests. And she talked about finding out what kids are interested in. And if you can teach them things they're interested in, not only are they going to pay attention more and be less, of, less discipline problems, but they're also going to learn more because they're interested. And if you've ever taught a second grade class and introduced a unit on dinosaurs and transfixed some of your students, you've seen that. Students that are even a handful are paying attention. And again, the educational background and the roles assumed at home. I have students. I had students in my first grade class that knew some things that I didn't know because they had particular roles in the home that, that I had never had to do. And also, we need to look at assessment data and student work. Often, and those of you, I'm an elementary former elementary teacher. I know that I'd find more about my students from student work than I would from a standardized assessment or even an end of the unit test. Um, and you get to see, look at work over time. If we look at, at what language and content we need to teach, and again, a sort of task analysis, we find that we need to really identify not just what the child knows, but we need to analyze the content that we're going to teach the child to look for ways to make that content more accessible to the child. Um, we need to look in conjunction at grade level content and the ELD standards. Here in California, West Ed produced a map that links the English language arts standards and the English language development standards. So you can see how they match up and how you can teach to both those standards at the same time. Um, I don't know about where you live, what your ELD standards are. Ours are kind of, eh, I wouldn't say they're my favorite things here in California. But it's important to look at them. Um, the intersection of your content objectives and the standards, because the standards don't always match up with the content that you're teaching. Here in California, we have language arts standards. We have, we have mandated scripted programs in reading. We do work to align our standards and our objectives, but there's a lot of overlap, and they're not always the same. Um, we have very regimented literacy instruction, if you're not from the state. Um, you need to look at also the language that's required to learn the content, obje content objectives and standards. Every time you're teaching content to a, an English language learner, you're teaching language as well. And that's the true of most students in the primary grades, but it's even more so for English language learners. And then the language that's required to engage in the literacy activities, not just the content that you're learning, but the reading that you're going to do or the writing that you're going to do to actually make sense of the content. And finally, where those language and content objectives intersect. We need to know what skills are necessary for the kids, for the students to be able to access the instruction, access the content. So again, I say this all the time to my students, find out what your students know. And then, pre-teach critical vocabulary. 
There's a great body of research that suggests for English language learning, pre-teaching critical vocabulary is one of the best things that you can do to improve reading comprehension and content understanding. Um, there's not such a, there's a not quite the same link between native English speakers and English reading comprehension, but for ELLs it's critical. Because we don't know if the student isn't accessing a piece of text or content because they don't know the content or they don't know the language. Build on background knowledge. Students come to school with a vastly different experience, group of, group of experiences. We need to, the, one of the reasons we find out what we know is that we can make connections between what students are learning and what they already know. Um, and we talked about how this also links to students, the cultural context from which the student comes from in a variety of ways and not just for English language learners. And the example I gave it to at the two o'clock session was that um, I'm a city girl. Um, for me, camping is the Hilton without room service. Um, so when I read Charlotte's Web, it's a vastly different book than it is for my students who grew up on the Rancho in Mexico. So we, we come to the book and we make meaning differently out of those, out of those books. And I told the group earlier, and plus I'm deathly afraid of spiders, so I keep wanting to kill Charlotte. So, which is not very good to read that text. We also need to provide explicit instruction in a collaborative setting. And what I mean as a collaborative setting is sometimes your English language learners, especially if you're teaching in the, in, you're teaching to a group that has students of diverse language proficiencies, might have some other questions that relate to language content. And so, to language as opposed to content. And so in a collaborative setting, there might be places where they can ask. My own classroom was a very noisy place, but it was noisy with a purpose. And then plan for language, model, and demonstrate over and over and over again. And practice, 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 practice. And check for understanding to find out what they know. Um, I was working on um, something to do with the Institutional Review Board at my school, and the study is going to have a consent form that they're going to give to parents who may not be English speakers. And they said, we asked, how are you going to ask the students if they can read the consent form? And they said, we're going to ask them, can they read it? Well, a lot of times a second language learner will say, yes, I can read that, because it's embarrassing for them, especially for adults, to say no. So we need to check and make sure they actually do understand, what, understand what's going on. How are we going to differentiate instruction? First of all, we need to teach the necessary skills for each learning task. We need to identify the language demands and the language skills. What language am I going to need to know to make sense of this text? And what language skills am I going to need to have to make that meaningful for me and learn from it? The cognitive demands, the literacy demands, and the opportunity to integrate cultural perspectives. Does this relate to anything in my background knowledge? Um, this is from the work of Jim Cummins. He started on this work in the late 70s. That Any of you that work with ELLs have probably seen this chart like 16 million times. I find this chart to be probably one of the most critical things for how to plan instruction for English language learners. Um, Jim Cummins talks about the intersection of two continua, and there are some that argue against this. The first one he talks about is the cognitively um, undemanding to cognitively demanding, easy to hard. And things and activities and knowledge move around on that continuum. The example I over, always give for me is the example of drive, learning to drive a car. When I first learned to drive a car back when I was 16 and I got in the car with my dad and he said, showed me the key and said, what is this? It was a key. Um, driving was very cognitively demanding for me. But now I've been driving for like a million years. It's not so cognitive demanding most of the time. And in fact, sometimes I'll be driving somewhere and I'm in the zen of the drive and I'm in between freeway signs and I'm thinking, where am I going? Um, or I miss the exit or because I'm just so focused on the drive that I'm not focused on the external things. But then sometimes, because I live in Los Angeles, it becomes cognitively demanding again. Because if you've lived here for any length of time or visited here for any length of time, you know that all it takes is five seconds of rain in the morning for the freeways to be ruined in Los Angeles. Not only is the road real slick, but there's traffic. Some place that usually takes you to go 10 minutes will take you three and a half hours once there's, once there's a couple drops of rain. So it becomes, it becomes cognitively demanding again. Sometimes when it's dark and foggy, it becomes cognitively, cognitively demanding again. He also talks about the context, whoops, I always mess that up, the context embedded to the context reduced. Okay. Context embedded is the quintessential everything that a kindergartner, kindergarten teacher does. 
Everything is contextualized. If she picks up a red crayon, she says this is red. If she's talking about white, she picks up white things. In my kindergarten, I know it's not, it's not so kind and gentle in kindergarten anymore, but in my school, when I taught, the, kindergarten, the first week of kindergarten was red week. Everything was red. The teacher wore red. The food was red. The paper was red. The crayon was red. Everything was red. It was very contextualized. Context reduced. The best example is a standardized test. The only context is the, I never know the right name for the things, the stem and the responses of your, of your test. There's no other context for your, for your standardized test question. Um, and basically what Cummins says is that he, he calls this four quadrants and he talks about moving from A to B to C to D. But I argue that that's kind of a flawed way to look at the quadrants. For me, as teachers, we should make everything cognitively demanding for our students regardless of their language proficiency level. There's no reason that someone who doesn't know English or is at an ELD level one shouldn't be cognitively challenged. So the, so the lesson I take from this is the less language proficient your students are, the more you need to contextualize their instruction, the more scaffolding you need to do the more visuals, the more realia, the more uh, say it a different way, the more support systems you need to give the student. And as they become more proficient in English, then you can take away some of those language scaffolds. Teachers, therefore, can differentiate the content, the language processes, and the products according to students' background knowledge, interests, and language proficiency. How are we going to scaffold the language and content? Some things are simple, like slow down your dialogue. Not too slow. It makes it harder to understand if it's too slow. But slowing down things like increasing wait time. Often we'll ask a question and expect the answer right, that, right away. And the second language learner may be taking some time to process the question and formulating the answer. If you think back to the first time you took a foreign language and listened to the teacher going around the room, you took some time to formulate your answer especially for older students and adults. Younger students will say anything blurted out, there's no, they're not, there's no shame. An older adult's not going to, or an older child isn't going to blurt it out that fast. Allow more turns before recasting what the learner said. So let them say it a few times and go back and revise themselves before you say it back to them correctly. And again, check for understanding. Adjust or paraphrase your inquiry. Ask them if they can say it again. Can they say it in a different way? Can you tell me a little more? What do you mean? Can you explain it again? And sometimes, if there's a really hard time saying, if you speak the, the native language of that student, can you tell me in Spanish? Can you tell me in Chinese? If it, I, that to me is my last resort because I want to get it out of them in English. And scaffold content. Again, modeling skills and strategies. Making the relationship between concepts overt. Sometimes you see the connection but the students don't. Um, emphasizing the distinctive features of new content and scaffolding the use of strategy, skills, and concepts. And some of this is like a no-brainer. Use manipulatives, visuals to teach content and language, especially at the early stages of language proficiency. Provide explicit instruction in language use. Um, a lot of times when I was teaching, we ran out of time for ESL, and the thought was that students would get the ESL in their other contents. They're not going to. We need to teach them English. Um, and encourage elaborated student responses rather than just a yes or a no or a one-word answer. And also using, use vocab, use gestures, facial expressions, um, whatever you take to help your students support, to support their English learning. And remember, we need to scaffold both the language and the content. Language scaffolding is not simplifying language, it's amplifying language. And just because the students don't know the language doesn't mean they can't think. The final part of our model is to find how you're going to find out what the students learned. How will you know what they learned? We argue that for ELLs, it's important to use multiple measures for it to assess them. We want them to have multiple opportunities to demonstrate mastery, both in the number of opportunities, but the ways that they can do it. If a pen and paper activity isn't working, maybe they're going to draw the answer. Maybe they're going to act it out. Whatever way it takes to get them to demonstrate that they know the content, especially if you're thinking that they don't know the language, and then we can work on the language. 
Um, it's important to language to examine data about student achievement and language development. In California, we assess students in, in K-12 every October, I believe. We, they take the California English Language Development Test. Unfortunately, the teachers don't get those results till the next year. So they're not much, they're not really helpful in planning instruction for your students. And then measure the progress, the process as well as the product, how they're doing in the activity in addition to the final product. And a few factors to consider, ELD level, primary language literacy skills, educational background, language of instruction, and instructional accommodations. And these are like the factors we had at the very beginning. And there's been a lot of work, Jamal Abadi out of UC Davis has done a lot of work on accommodations for English language learners and assessment. He talks about things like extra time. If any of you are bilingual and think about taking a test in your second language, it takes longer. I speak Spanish. I have a hard time with a standardized test in Spanish unless I had a whole lot more time. Reading aloud the directions, small group or individual testing, or even native language testing, but with a caveat. Because if a student has only been instructed in English, it's going to be very hard to take a standardized assessment in, in their native language if they've never been exposed to that in an academic way. Uh, and a couple of other things, just clarifying words, flexible scheduling, and we just need to remember that the most effective accommodations address basic linguistic needs. One of my friends used to always uh, want to use dictionaries. Like if it was a Spanish-English bilingual student, they wanted to give them an English dictionary. Well, if they don't speak enough English, they're not going to be able to access the English dictionary to help them with the task. It doesn't make sense. And if they're not fluent enough in Spanish, they're not going to be able to do that too. We seem to assume that the students are going to be equally proficient in both language or more proficient in one, and that's not always the case. And I just have a final thought. I'm going to let my students talk, talk to you first. Let's see if you're full Start reading it. Well, that was a little book. That was just in the pictures. You gotta say what your old words. What kind of cake was it? What kind of cake? And what did they tell her at the cake? Okay, that's your work. What did? And I think Mary Lou McCloskey said it all in 1990. Language teaching to students who are acquiring English should take place all day in all content areas. These students have no time to waste. Thank you, Sharon, for sharing the model for us. To respond to Dr. Dr. Olanoff's presentation here, we have Dr. Madeline. Dr. Madeline million, <laughs> is faculty with the University of Northern Colorado, and she's a professor there. She is the author of Diversity and Visual Impairment, the Influence of Culture, Gender, and Ethnicity. Her expertise is in the field of visual impairment and English language learning. She began her teaching profession as a bilingual teacher of ESL teacher as well, and also as a teacher of students with visual impairments. So to respond to Dr. Olenoff, we have the pl pleasure of hearing Dr. Millian. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all of you for staying around so late. I know that you're very tired and I will try to make it as interesting as possible and as quickly as possible so maybe we can have some questions. Uh, when I was first asked uh, to respond to Dr. Ulanov's uh, presentation, I had envisioned to take her model and take you through each one of the components of her models and tell you how those models could be, how those components can be applied and could be different for kids with visual impairments. Uh, it became apparent to me that I did not have the time to do that. So what I did is I picked two, two of her components and really looked at them in terms of how is this different in addition to what she had already stated, which all of it could apply to kids with uh, visual impairments who are ELL. I also added some of the more specific things that could uh, apply for, uh, particularly for um, for blind kids who are Braille users. So, um, so that's my approach, and I maybe one day I will do that. I will continue to take her model and see how it can ap apply to kids with visual impairments who are ELL. I am going to begin by sharing, you, sharing with you a conversation that I had with a family. Uh, I have known them for many years. I have known them since they came to the United States uh, when their children, when their child was three years old. 
and I have stayed in this family's life for many years, and I visited with them two years ago, uh, two months ago. And while I was preparing for this presentation, I thought, oh, their conversation was really relevant to this topic. So I will share that with you. This is the mother uh, speaking. I met them when the boy Camilo was three years old, and he is now in 11th grade. Came to the United States from Mexico. I had never had it, may have had some early intervention in Mexico. The parents became apparent to them that they couldn't really educate the, uh, Camilo the way that he, they would want him to be educated, so they decided to come to the United States. This family is a, um, unlike some other immigrant families and that the mother has a university uh, degree, the father has a technical degree, so they, are, they know education, they have very high expectation for their children. So this is what the mother said. We thought Camilo was learning enough English to go to college, but he has not been able to do well on the standardized test. We never taught him how to read Spanish because we thought he would get confused. Now he does not know English well enough for college, and he does not know how to read Spanish either. So that, to me, was a a real sad statement that a parent has to make. There was almost like a... Uh, sense of failure in her voice because of she she does not see that what she had anticipated and expected for her child had really materialized. Uh, so here's what Camilo said. He says, I know that I have problems with English grammar and vocabulary. I kept thinking that one day I was going to get better. Now I am in 11th grade, and I think it may never get better. I want to tell you Camilo is a successful student in relationship to the, his other peers. He does well in school. He, he, it's, um, when you look at him and when you ask his teachers, he's doing well. However, he's not able to pass a standardized test and he himself knows that his English skills are not at the same level with other peers and he identifies that his vocabulary is not at the level that it ought to be. So he is smart enough and he is capable enough to understand his educational deficits in comparison to other children. And so uh, when you look at that, um, I want to go to then what do we hear in the comments and concerns expressed by Camilo and his parents? What are the kinds of things, what are the kinds of conflicts that parents of kids who are ELL and are visually impaired, what are the kinds of decisions that they have to make that perhaps other parents don't have to make? and, and what are the things that they're concerned about that we as teachers can perhaps help with? One of them is oral language is not sufficient. We need to focus on academic language. I think many of the conversations that we've talked about, that we have heard uh, t- today in uh, Dr. Ulanov's presentation and the presentation that we heard this morning talked about how language is different in certain different disciplines. So we talk about the language of math, and we talk about the language of science, and we talk about the language of biology. And kids need to kids need to know that language if they are to be successful academically. So oral language and social language itself is not going to make kids successful. It's not going to make kids pass the standardized tests that they're required to to um, to pass. And so really look looking at academic language as, as, uh, as a necessity, it's, it's really important for us to understand. ELL parents trust educators to know how to monitor the teaching of English. Most parents of ELL kids do not know English well enough to find out whether the English instruction is appropriate or not. They trust educators to be doing that for their children and for the parents. Um, Camilo's parents, although they're university educated, their English was not fluent enough. However, now they understand because he's not able to pass a standardized test that perhaps there's something wrong with his English. Uh, And so parents trust the school system to make sure that they're teaching English to their ELL kids. Now what happens was a lot of ELL kids, and especially kids with visual impairments, they learn enough 
oral language to get by, but they never advance enough in academic language to do well. And this is what many educators do not understand and what parents find themselves understanding later on that, oh, yes, my child speaks English, but it's not the kind of English that is going to make them uh, successful in school. And so parents trust us to do that for them. And so we need to take this very seriously, and it's our responsibility to make sure that, um, for example, let me go back to Camilo's case. He did not receive um, ELL services long enough for them to have been successful with, 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 um, with Camilo. He only had ESL in first grade. So he went from a preschool to kindergarten, and he had some ELL services in kindergarten. He had some ELL services in, in, in uh, first grade. I don't even, he was never um, uh, exited out from the program because they never figure out how to give him an, an exam to test him to exit him out from the ELL program. So it was supposed, he was supposedly exited out from the program without really any evidence because all of you understand how difficult it is to find a, a, a test that is uh, valid enough for visually impaired kids. So he was sort of, it was sort of assumed that he no longer needed ELL services and in retrospect that was not a right decision. Uh, the, uh, the third point is ELL parents have to make language decisions that other parents do not have to make. So as bilingual parents or as, as parents who are not English speakers, many times they have to make the decision as to whether they're going to continue to reinforce their home language or neglect their home language. And this is a, these are the kinds of decisions that are very difficult for parents to make. And many cases, parents, under the run assumption, believe that if they continue to speak to their children in their native language or if they uh, try to help their children with literacy in their native language, that they will somehow interfere with English. There is no research to support that. There is no research to support that maintaining the native language and in uh, making, uh, facilitating native language literacy is going to at all interfere with, with English. In fact, we have strong evidence that, in fact, it really helps with English uh, learning as well. But parents don't know this, and many teachers don't know this as well. So if you have a parent who's struggling and that parent goes to a teacher who perhaps may not know this body of evidence, the parent, it, intuitively one will say, Oh, well, if he's trying to learn one language, why will we um, make more cognitive demands on, on the child with two languages? And that really, there's no basis for that. So uh, over and over again, we make this mistake. And, and parents then find out that when the, ch when the child is in, in high school, he has lost his ability to communicate with mom and dad and grandmother and grandfather. And now we have taken away a very strong support that we all have when we do not have to give up one language. Remember that we see kids in school as English being, but they are not only English beings. They are, they are also belong to another culture and community. And when we take that language away from them, we actually are separating them from that language, from that community, and from that home in ways that we cannot replace as teachers because they need the support of grandmother. They need the advice of grandmother and grandfather and the big uncle and the big aunt. And when you take away that language and when we're not support that language, those social resources are taken away from the child. And this is that's devastating for some kids because we're not allowing them to continue to get social support and moral support that so you know that everybody needs when they're going through the transition from middle school to high school and then after, even after high school in terms of moral support. So those are the kinds of decisions that are really difficult to make and that we as educators should be able to guide parents through, through that process. The, the fourth point is English grammar and vocabulary are skills that need to be specifically taught. And um, ELL kids sometimes do not get modeling. You know, we, we always talk about modeling as a good strategy, and I, it is absolutely a good strategy. However, it doesn't always work with ELL kids because they don't pick up the modeling. So, you, so you're saying it the right way, but 
they're not picking it up the right way. And it goes also for writing. And so we know from past work that if you see an ELL kid who continues to make the same grammar errors, you have to teach them because they're not going to pick it up by modeling. And the same thing with writing. If you keep seeing the same mistakes over and over again in writing and you keep modeling it the right way, they're just not understanding it. There are also some, and this comes from the work of um, Maria de la Luz Reyes. She did a, a, a wonderful work with an ELL classrooms, and she kept seeing that the kids were making the same mistakes over and over again, and teachers were modeling because modeling is a good, and they were not paying it, they were not pointing out that they were making a mistake because they thought that modeling would work. Well, kids were not getting it, and there were also some cultural um, reasons for this. A lot of ELL kids come from the belief that if you do something wrong, the teacher is going to correct you, right? And teachers were not correcting their work, so therefore, it must be right. And so, uh, so this is we 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 have come to understand that we need to directly. Uh, teach English grammar and vocabulary. Those of you who came to the presentation this morning about uh, vocabulary, there are wonderful ways to teach vocabulary. We know the, the, the gaps that blind children have with vocabulary, so it is much more important to really address vocabulary with our population of English language learners who are also, also visually impaired because they have the vocabulary deficits from being second language learners, but they also have the vocabulary deficits from uh, being visually impaired. So it's really, really critical that we address vocabulary. Um, next. Now, uh, I took who are the students from... Um, Dr. Ulanov uh, model, and so what? What is it more specific to kids with visually impaired? In addition to what the factors or the variables that were already explained in her model, so very important. What are the cultural views of visual impairments in this child's culture? So, what are the expectations for a visually impaired person in the culture of the child? Because those expectations that the parents have and those expectations that, that are culturally bound will determine the kinds of goals that parents will have and that the, the community will have for that particular child. So it's really important for us as educators to understand how may those cultural values may be getting in the way of what we understand to be appropriate services. And so how may we have to look for culturally appropriate ways to convince parents that that this child should have, we should have high expectations for children. And so this is very important for us to understand. As all of you know, there are different expectations for people with visually impaired and among different cultures, and, and we need to understand that. Now, number two, exposure to Braille and the native language. So what kind of education has that child have in their native language? And if the child is a Braille user, what kind of Braille code? Is it a contracted code? Is it a non-contracted code? Um, some cases, I've worked with some kids who have come with really good uh, literacy skills, but they have never been taught to do any math in Braille. So they could do mental math, but they're back home. They never had any math books in Braille, so the, ch the children do not have any idea of how to write a problem in math, although they can uh, mentally do the problem. They have never been taught Braille math, uh, math uh, Braille in math. So that, those, those kinds of information are really important for guiding our instruction. Um, educational experiences in the native country. Parents can be really uh, important to gather this kind of information. Was, uh, was education available for blind children only in specialized schools? Did the child go to a neighborhood schools? I worked a couple of years ago, actually well, not a couple of years ago, it was more like five, six years, worked with a family whose both parents were blind and the little boy was blind. They have moved to, they have moved from Mexico. The child had lived in this, uh, very small community. He went to the local school. They were, they had, um, 
have very high expectations for this child um, and because he had been so free in his community to go anywhere, had wonderful mobility skills. When, they, when it came to the United States, they were um, somewhat disappointed because mobility in, in an urban setting is not the same as mobility in a small town where they could trust everyone. So they culturally had a, a very... Um, uh, difficult adaptation to ha- not having their child walk to the, to the local school because, you know, even though he was attending the local school, wasn't, it wasn't across the street or it wasn't two blocks down. It was, you know, it was, it, there was a walk to get there. So uh, what kinds of educational settings have been available um, for students? Now, some kids come from rural areas where there are no, there's no education for kids with disabilities. And so they come into our schools without really knowing the culture of schools. And a very important one, what is, what are some of the home expectations based on gender and disability? And you know that as the, in our field, we not only deal with literacy, but we also deal with um, daily living skills and mobility. But So how, what are the expectations that parents have for their kids to contribute at home, for what, what kinds of daily living skills are accepted in the home, either because of gender or because of disability. You know, we still hear that boys are not supposed to learn to cook because boys don't cook. And then we have to say, oh, but you know, in the United States, actually boys do cook. And so, so all the kind of thinking that, that parents have to go through and that we have to convince families that that these are appropriate skills and it's okay for for their children to learn that. There might come a time that you have to say, you know, I'm teaching this child something that he's never going to do at home, and that's okay, but you still will teach it, and maybe that child will one day use it. But as teachers also, we have to live with the realization that once they go back, once they are home, we have no power over them, and that in fact, whatever we're teaching them, there is not going to be useful for them. But nevertheless, we feel that it's valuable, and we teach it. Um, and the same thing with gender. Uh, both this gender and disability, in terms of cultures, is really interesting. In terms of assessment, um, the things that I thought are really important is that native language and formal assessment is an excellent starting point to guide instruction including Braille skills. I, it does not matter whether your school district teaches, supports the native language or not, but it does matter that you understand what the child brings to your educational setting, and the only way that you are going to be able to get to that is through native language assessment. It does not have to be a standardized test. It does not have to be very formal. It could be very informal, but you can really gather very, very strong information. You know, and it could be as simple as having the child write a letter in the native language um, in, in the, with the Braille writer. And as a non-native speaker of that language, you may not be able to read the letter, but what you could do is you could look at that, how that child is using that Braille writer. So not only how is the writing, but how are the skills for using the barrel writer? Is he using the right finger position? Is he uh, not using the space bar correctly? So there are many, many things that you can do through informal assessment that doesn't require that you are the speaker of that language, but that it gives you an opportunity to observe. Now, obviously, you're not going to ask the kid to write something in English because it's not possible for them. So what are the kinds of opportunities that you may create that will give you information that will be necessary to guide instruction? Interviews with families about educational experiences in the native country are really essential. You know, things such as how many years, uh, what, what kind of educational experiences, what, how did the teachers react with the kid, you know, all those kinds of things that only parents can give you. Information about daily living skills and mobility can be gathered through observations and interviews with family members as well. So family members can tell you what kinds of things are kids doing at home um, and, and so that you can begin to plan for what is needed um, um, 
at school. Uh, remember that ch- child-rearing practices are very different in different cultures, and there are different expectations. And so maybe in one culture, the kids are not supposed to be getting dressed and, and making decisions about what they wear or doing their hair and all those kinds of things. But those are the things that are important for you to learn through parents. So what are your expectations for this child? Uh, and background knowledge, it's so important. Um, for all ELR learners, but particularly for ELR learners who are visually impaired. Uh, the education, educational, geographical, political, medical, socioeconomic, native language fluency, and, and visual status are all part of what develops this background knowledge. And I, we as teachers can never assume or anticipate what the child, what kind of background knowledge a child brings, because our experiences have been very different from that child experiences. And so I, I always say my, our reality is, has never been their reality, so I cannot assume or anticipate because I don't really know what this child knows. So no assumptions can be made as to what she or he knows or does not know. So uh, given the connection between experiences and language development, and knowing that ELL kids have had limited cultural experiences in the United States, and that blind kids sometimes have limited uh, experiences that then are able to, that they can then develop appropriate language skills. It is really critical that we provide many, many experiences, rich and multiple experiences to develop the new language and the new environment. Because they may have a lot of languages that is good in their environment. For example, if a child has comes from a rural community, they may have the vocabulary to function in a rural community, but they lack the vocabulary to function in an urban city and a school in, in the United States. So there, a lot of their background knowledge does not transfer well sometimes. So they have to really build new experiences. Um, and that was it for my part. I think that the model that Dr. Ulanov has is very appropriate to our work with the LL kids with visual impairments. As soon as we remember that we always have the struggle about visuals and how the ELL field is dominated by the sense, of, by the sense of vision and that that is their training. And so we as Teachers for the visually impaired really need to collaborate with the ELL professionals in, in trying to in make accommodations so that they can work with ELL standards through, through material that is appropriate for blind and visually impaired students to, uh, to use, and that's the only way that you can differenti- differentiate instruction for them. All right, thank you very much, Dr. Olenoff and Dr. Millian, for the wonderful presentations that you both provided us.